0: Most of my analysis so far as an investor has been focused around the quality of businesses. I felt very strongly that investors should focus more on the quality than anything else. So I've made many videos, in fact, hours of content going over seemingly boring companies like Costco, ones that I call compounding machines. I've gone over the business model, the membership, the warehouse layout, how Costco makes you spend so much money when you're there, their growth plans and international expansion. And I've done the same for each company in my portfolio. Whether it's Texas Roadhouse or S&P Global, every one of them has a story behind them. These are incredible businesses, compounders that can grow intrinsic value year after year. Now, after spending years pointing out the quality of these companies, most investors have come to the conclusion that they're good companies. They've had good returns. Most of them have gone up a lot in value. These ones haven't had devastation. They haven't dropped 80% in value. None of these companies have gone bankrupt or even close. They're all compounding intrinsic value every single year. So the question isn't anymore whether they're good or not. Most of us agree they're good companies. The question now is, are we buying them at the right price? Recently, stock prices have raced up the general market has raced up. So what we're gonna be doing in this video is instead of talking about the qualities of these companies, we're gonna be talking about valuation. That's right, spreadsheets and all, we're gonna be looking at the nitty gritty math, the free cash flow yields, the projected growth rates, what companies are a buy right now, and which ones have stretch valuations. Valuation should not be complex or difficult, so we're gonna be doing the simple form of it in this episode. And then we also do have some other big news today. We have the FTC suing Amazon over manipulative tactics used to enroll millions of people in Amazon Prime, and then making it very difficult for users to cancel their Prime subscription. We'll be talking about that. We also have the very important breaking news that Elon Musk has challenged Mark Zuckerberg to a cage match fight, like a physical fight. They're actually going to fight each other, and Elon Musk said, the Vegas Octagon the go-to place to have any big exciting event. So we have here Elon Musk versus Mark Zuckerberg. I also ran a poll asking you, the audience, who is gonna win this match, and the results were a little bit shocking. There's a lot of people saying that Elon Musk is going to win. We're gonna be discussing this later on in this episode. And then it's that time of the week again. We're getting close to the weekend, so we go to TikTok to get our financial advice. This time coming from a very wealthy individual. You can tell he's wealthy, by the fact that he's in a pool while recording a selfie and he's got a nice big home behind him, lots of chains and an expensive watch. All the typical signs of a very successful person. So we're gonna see what he has to say about how to get rich. So having said that, we have a lot to get to. Let's go ahead and jump right in. And we'll start off looking at the passive income portfolio and going over the valuation of every company. The first thing I wanna mention is The main focus of this channel, for those of you that have been following me for a long period of time, you know the major focus is on the qualities of a company, the mode of the company, the ecosystem of products, the growth rate, all those great things that makes a company compound its intrinsic value year after year after year. And I still believe that that is the most important thing to get right. Being able to separate a good company from a bad company is step number one. This is part two, which is the valuation. In this step, we have a group of good companies. We've outlined them as high-quality compounders, and they're companies that are gonna flourish and have financial prosperity over the next 10 years. Step two is trying to buy these companies at reasonable, or hopefully, great valuations. The best combination is buying a great company at a great valuation. That happens rarely. But it can happen. Buying Microsoft at 220 was buying a great company at a great valuation. Buying Apple at $80 per share was buying a great company at a great valuation. But valuations change all the time. The stock market has been on a roll, and so this is a bit of a moving target. But we're here at step two, looking at how to buy these companies at decent valuations. And what I believe most investors get wrong in this process of valuing companies is the way that they do it in a very complex way. So many investors make this more difficult than needs be. They have complex spreadsheets with hundreds of rows and columns and data inputs, trying to go over the turnover and working capital and the margins for every single year and changes in tax rates, trying to actually go through in that level of detail and to try to outline everything specifically on a granular level that's going to happen with a company is impossible to do accurately. And most great investors do not value companies this way with overly complex spreadsheets. In fact, Warren Buffett does not value companies this way, nor has he ever valued companies this way. I recently finished a book called The Snowball. It's a comprehensive look at Warren Buffett's life and his investments, and one of the quotes stuck out to me. It was, quote, Buffett never used calculators or spreadsheets if the value didn't hit him over the head like a caveman club, it wasn't worth buying. So no calculators, no spreadsheets, and he has phenomenal returns, and he turned what was a tiny amount of capital into a business worth over $500 billion. And this is the simplicity of looking at valuation. Either the value of the company is transparently good or it's not worth investing in. That was his philosophy. Now, when I do this, ironically enough, I'm gonna break one of his rules and I'm gonna be looking at a spreadsheet here. So we broke one of his rules, but this is going to be a very, very simple spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet only has two real columns of information. That's how simple this is. I laid out on the left here the name of the company in question. Each of these companies is around 10% of my invested capital right now. And then we have the main column here, which is the starting free cash flow yield of the company. The free cash flow yield of the company is adjusted for stock-based comp, which we can look at with Qualtrim, So all of these numbers are by plugging this into Qualtrim and looking at that metric, the adjusted free cash flow yield. For example, we can look at MasterCard here. Very simply, we put in MasterCard to Qualtrim Insights. This tool gives you all the basic fundamentals of a stock. I can zoom in a little bit here and one of the first pieces of information we get is the valuation of the company based on its cash flows. MasterCard has a free cash flow yield of 2.8%. When we take out the stock-based comp, We get the investor's free cash flow yield, which is 2.75%. So the number we're looking at is this one right here, 2.75%. So in the case of MasterCard, we have that 2.7% free cash flow yield starting. And this is what I did with every single company. And this is very simple. It's what you're getting for the company right away. What it's expected to do this year in cash flows. So every company has a starting yield and that's the baseline valuation of it. But intrinsic in every part of the valuation of a company is the growth rate. This is the second most important thing in valuation. Not what you're getting this year, but how much is that going to grow for the next five years? So I have the projected growth rate for the next five years. In the case of MasterCard, we can take this as an example. I have the starting free cash flow yield of 2.7% and I have a growth rate of 17%. For the next five years. Let's go ahead and take a look at how I got there. So we go back to MasterCard and we have to do a bit of research on the company to come to the growth rate. We can look at the metrics of the company and see that MasterCard is an incredible growth machine. It grows its revenue 11 to 12% per year, grows its EBITDA, it grows its earnings, they do share buybacks. And one of the most amazing things about this company is the level of conversion it has from a free cash flow. MasterCard is one of these incredible companies that converts around 50% of its total revenue into free cash flow. That is very rare. For example, in 2022, they did $22 billion of revenue. In 2022, they also did $10 billion in free cash flow. So around 48% of the revenue was converted to free cash flow. And then they also don't do a lot of stock-based comp. So this is money on the table for the investor. Now on this cash flow chart, there's a couple different things that you can look at. The adjusted free cash flow, which nets it out. You have the free cash flow per share, which is a good metric to look at. But my favorite one is the one right at the bottom, the adjusted free cash flow per share. Which is a free cash flow per share minus the stock based comp per share. I believe that this gives you the best look at the intrinsic value growth of a company. And in the case of MasterCard, this company has grown its intrinsic value incredibly fast and incredibly consistent. Over the past 10 years, it's grown at 17%. Past five years, 17%. Past two years, 27%. So the high teens for the past decade and beyond. MasterCard has a long runway of growth. There's continual growth in digital payments. There's a lot of cash, trillions of dollars still in cash, which they will continue to take market share from. So over time, I assume we'll see similar growth rates. I plugged in 17% growth. That is what I'm expecting for the next five years. So I did similar analysis on each one of these companies. Every one of these are based on previous growth rates plus what I believe is the future outlook for the company, the runway of growth and the different opportunities they have. The companies in my portfolio have something in common. They're good at growing free cash flow quickly. They're doing that at a very fast rate and the future prediction is they'll continue to do that at a decent rate for the next five years. So most of these are highly capital efficient businesses that have huge moats and lots of ways to grow. Now, at the bottom, what I did was I totaled this up and averaged it out. So in terms of the starting yield, we have a starting yield of 2.9%, and then the average of the growth rates is 15%. That's the valuation of my portfolio right now. That is what I'm buying. I'm buying a 2.9% free cash flow yield with a 15% growth rate. Now if you're looking at your portfolio, it's great to know these assumptions, but you have to have some type of relative benchmark to benchmark it against. In this case, I'm using the benchmark of the S&P 500. Currently, the S&P 500 has a free cash flow yield of around 3.7%. So it's a little bit higher than mine. Mine's 2.9%, the S&P 500 today has a 3.7% yield. Now the S&P 500 has a higher starting yield but a much much slower growth rate on average for the past two decades spy has grown its free cash flow per share around eight percent per year so that's a very slow growth rate and keep in mind a lot of the companies in spy are much slower growing companies there are no microsofts there are no mastercards there are no s&p globals spy holds a lot of banks and utilities and industrials and companies that are much much slower growing so on average eight percent growth rate per year So the big difference between my portfolio and the benchmark of the S&P 500 is really a trade-off between starting yield and growth. Today, the S&P 500 has a more attractive starting yield based on this year's free cash flow, but a much, much slower average growth rate. When you work out the math over the next five years, my portfolio based on this current math should beat out the S&P 500 by around 7% over the next five years. That doesn't seem like a lot, just 7%, but that does compound over time. Over the next 10 years, continually focus on companies that have higher intrinsic value compounding should continue to lead the S&P 500. So it's a very conservative portfolio. There's nothing too dramatic about it. It's very similar to the S&P 500 in some ways, but it's also a bit different. There is a trade-off here between starting yield and expected growth. And there's also no way to guarantee performance. Things do work out differently than we expect. Some of these companies are going to grow slower. Some of them might even run into trouble or completely plateau. And then arguably, there's going to be some of these companies that grow much faster than expected. They do a little bit better than... I expect, and other investors expect. So, not all of these are going to be spot on but my hope here is to get them in the right direction. But again, nothing here is guaranteed. The future is unknown. We invest based off the best knowledge we have at the time. So however this turns out, whether it turns out great and the portfolio does outperform or whether it turns into a struggle and we run into issues, I'm gonna show you transparently the outcome either way. Now, outside of my portfolio, there's a couple news pieces here that I think are silly, and this is one of them. The FTC led by... What I consider to be an extremist, Lena Khan, is now suing Amazon over manipulative tactics used to enroll millions of people in Prime. And here's what they're alleging in this lawsuit. Quote, Amazon tricked and trapped people into reoccurring subscriptions without their consent, not only frustrating users, but also costing them significant money. That doesn't sound good. Amazon's a company that's supposed to love the consumer. They offer great customer service and, and free returns and low-cost merchandise. They're overall a very consumer-friendly company. So saying that they tricked people and trapped them is very strong language coming from the FTC chair, Lena Kahn. But she continues on. They used, quote, manipulative, coercive, and deceptive user interface designs known as dark patterns. She brings out the term dark patterns. It seems complicated. Like if you know about dark patterns, you're in on some special secret. You have advanced knowledge of what's going on. Dark patterns is something that's very basically a way that websites direct users to specific parts of the website. That's all a dark pattern is. She continues on saying that, quote, Amazon leadership slowed or rejected changes that would have made it easier for users to cancel Prime because those changes adversely affected Amazon's bottom line. So Amazon is intentionally making it difficult to exit out and cancel Prime. Let's go ahead and go through this. Uh, I wanna highlight why I think that these complaints are frankly ridiculous. They're disproven by basic data here. The first big complaint is that Amazon is tricking people into signing up for it. This is a pretty greedy thing, and I would say a very desperate thing for a company to do. If a company has decided that in order to get customers, they literally have to trick you into becoming a customer, that is one company that's running out of desperation and amazon's not a company operating out of desperation they have an estimated 300 million subscribers 300 million amazon prime customers i don't believe a company that has 300 million subscribers that love the product and love the service need to act out of desperation to trick people into subscribing so that's something that i just don't see and so far we've seen no evidence of them actually doing this the next thing I think is even more preposterous. Amazon has trapped people into reoccurring subscriptions without their consent. So they've literally trapped customers into their Prime membership like a trapped animal in a cage. I actually went through and just went to see how difficult it was for me to figure out how to cancel my Prime membership. It literally was three clicks. You click on the menu, you go down to your Amazon membership, you click on Uh, the membership details, and they have a button right there and my membership. That was it. It took me all of one minute to figure out how to do it. They also allow you to cancel on the mobile app. So if the desktop website doesn't work for you, you can cancel right on the mobile app. They also allow you to cancel through the chat. So you can chat customer service and even get help and instructions on how to cancel. Or you can call Amazon and they will walk you through how to cancel their service. So just to clarify, this company that's trapping customers, into their subscription has five different ways of canceling. Through the chat, through the website, through the mobile app, and through calling in. Now there are some companies that have been known and have a strong reputation for being incredibly frustrating to cancel. The New York Times being one of them. The New York Times is now a subscription first company. They basically make all of their revenue and earnings from subscriptions. And you can sign up easily online without talking to anyone. So it's easy to sign up, but very difficult to cancel. Currently, to cancel your subscription to the New York Times, you have to call them on the phone. You have to talk to someone in person. They'll try to talk you out of canceling, and there's no other way to do it. You can't go online and end it easily like you can on Amazon. You can't do it through the mobile app. So the New York Times has specifically made it easy to sign up and difficult to cancel. They're an actual abuser of what the FTC is alleging that Amazon is doing. But Amazon is not even doing that. So here we have a selective enforcement of law targeted at Amazon when there's much bigger offenders of this, like the New York Times and historically the Wall Street Journal and Barron's and other publications that make it so you have to actually get on the phone and call in and talk to someone to cancel your membership. But this isn't surprising at all. Amazon has been for a long time the boogeyman of the FTC, they've been the big bad company, they get unfairly targeted because they're part of big tech and they employ a lot of people. Going through the history of Lena Kahn, it becomes incredibly apparent that she has a bone to pick with big tech and specifically Amazon. This goes all the way back to when she was in college. While being a student at Yale Law School, she argued that antitrust law failed to restrain the online retailer. So she was writing research papers against Amazon before even becoming the FTC chair. But now that she has a position of power, she can try to reach and search for different ways to target Amazon. At best, these claims are reaching and not accurate. At worst, this is a selective enforcement of the law, going after companies like Amazon for things that other companies are doing to a much worse extent. So in my opinion, I don't think that this is a real lawsuit. I think it's politically motivated. It's motivated out of bias. And I do not believe the FTC has a very strong case here. Now, moving on, we have some exciting news that Mark Zuckerberg is ready to fight Elon Musk in a cage match. This seems like it would be something that's not real. But here in 2023, this actually seems like something that would be real. And this is real. This started off after Elon Musk recently tweeted that he would Be, quote, up for a cage fight with Zuckerberg. The Meta CEO shot back by posting a screenshot of Musk's tweet with the caption, quote, send me location. So this may have started as a joke, Elon Musk saying that he'll fight Mark Zuckerberg, and then Mark Zuckerberg calls his bluff, says that he will fight him and just send the location. He says, I've confirmed that Zuckerberg's post on Instagram account is in fact not a joke, which means the ball is now in Musk's court. When a meta spokesperson was asked about this, they said, quote, the story speaks for itself, meaning the story on Instagram. Now, after the story was published, Musk responded again with two words, Vegas octagon. Now I must admit, my first thoughts after seeing Elon Musk say Vegas octagon was of course he would say Vegas. The best place to have exciting events, like a cage match between two billionaire CEOs. And my thoughts were to, say, Long Vichy Elon Musk continued on to double down and triple down on this, saying that I'm up for a cage match if he is, lol. Elon Musk seems to be taking this seriously, but also joking about it, so it's hard to get kind of a, a gauge of where he's actually at. He made a joking tweet after this, saying that I have a great move that I call, quote, the walrus, where I lie on top of my opponent and do nothing. So maybe he's trying to downplay it. I'm sure that he is, because when it really comes down to it, the battle between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg in a battle of physical might is heavily swayed in Mark Zuckerberg's favor. And I don't even think this would be close. Now, Elon Musk may have been losing weight, but from what we see, he's not exactly known to be the most athletic person. He's a a science nerd. He's an amazing person when it comes to Constructing rockets and building companies and giving political takes and getting excitement and engagement. He's so good at so many things. Elon Musk has a lot of skill sets, but so far, being in a fight has not been one of them. It's not something that we've ever seen. Mark Zuckerberg, on the other hand, is physically fit. He's been training for a long period of time, specifically in grappling, MMA, Jiu Jitsu, with professional trainers. Training is very important when it comes to fighting. Almost always the person with the most experience is going to win. And Zuckerberg is younger, more physically active as a person. So it's difficult to imagine a fight where Mark Zuckerberg loses this. One advantage that Elon Musk has is that he's relatively big. He's a pretty big guy. He stands at a height of around six feet, two inches. By comparison, Mark Zuckerberg is a lot shorter. We're talking five foot, seven inches. So Elon Musk has around seven inches of height over Mark Zuckerberg. He would really tower over him if they're standing next to each other. So in a direct size comparison, Elon Musk is a bigger individual and that is a natural advantage when it comes to MMA. So they each have their advantages and disadvantages. Mark Zuckerberg is formally trained and physically active he's 10 years younger, but he's also much shorter and a bit smaller than Elon Musk. When it comes down to it, I think strongly that Elon Musk would, he would really get destroyed in a fight with Mark Zuckerberg. I think even his height advantage would not be enough to overcome the incredible lack of training that Mark Zuckerberg has received. So when I did a poll on this, The audience voted 72% that Mark Zuckerberg would win, 27% that Elon Musk would win. I think this is directionally correct, but I think the odds are a little bit even more stretched. I think there's around a 90% chance that Mark Zuckerberg would win if I had to put it into betting odds. So if this is the odds right now, if this was the betting odds, 27%, 72%, I would take those odds and bet with Mark Zuckerberg. I'm very confident that the formally trained fighter would end up winning. But as of now, this is just talk. We don't have anything set in stone. I do think this would be a hilarious thing to watch. I think it would be in good fun. I think it would make the billionaires a little bit more relatable, a little bit more fun. And it's always fun to have these type of hypotheticals, Who could win in these type of fights? It's always an interesting discussion. So who knows if this will actually happen? It may just fizzle out like a lot of these things eventually do. If this fight actually did happen, I would assume it would be one of the most viewed fights in MMA history. Now, of course, it's that time of the week. We're getting close to the weekend here. And this is where we check in on TikTok and we get the best financial advice. This individual right here is going to show you how to be rich like he is. You know that he's rich. And I I think it goes without saying. If you look at the background of his selfie video, he's in a pool with a phone, which only rich people do. He has really nice necklaces and he's got a big house behind him. So let's go ahead and try to figure out how we got to this situation.
1: What if I told you there was a way to buy things like this $100,000 watch without spending a single dollar of your money?
0: Now, I don't even think that was necessary. I knew, I knew my guy right here, he was wealthy before he showed me that watch, but that watch is pretty dope as well. We got a $100,000 watch. Look at that thing. It's just a, a cluster of diamonds wrapped around his wrist. So he had to point it out anyways, just to make sure in case it wasn't clear enough, but but I, I understood it beforehand.
1: Without spending a single dollar of your own money using business credit like this, that you never actually had to pay back. Not to the average person guys, this sounds crazy, but any business owner knows how this works. You know how personal credit works. Let's say for example, you will get a car or... A cre- so
0: business owners should know what's going on here.
1: Let's go take a look. Credit card in your personal name, you're personally held responsible for that. So if you were to go get a credit card in your personal name and you were to go max the card out, you're going to be held liable. And if you don't make that payment back, the bank could come and sue you. What makes us different about business credit? Well, business credit, you are not personally held responsible for that line of credit. So let's say, for example, how I got this watch, I was able to open a business that I didn't really give a shit about. I went and opened business credit cards in that account. I then proceeded to go on, buy this for $100,000. I'm going to turn around and sell it to a jeweler for $80,000 in cash, which now gives me the cash. I'll file bankruptcy on the company. I'll never have to actually pay it back because I'm not personally liable for that American Express card. It's all liable underneath my business. That's as
0: simple as that. He just he just unlocked the secrets of generational wealth. It's a secret money hack. You're getting free money, you never have to pay back, and you can repeat this over and over again.
1: I'm weird to explain in one video, but guys, if you're interested in getting involved in this, and you could use some extra easy money now, I want you to go to Instagram. And of course, he has a plug.
0: You can follow him if you want to get more details on the secret money hack. Now before you follow his genius advice, this infinite money hack, I would give a little bit of a word of caution. What he's admitting to, which is opening up a business and then getting lines of credit from a bank via credit cards and then using those lines of credit to max them out, buy frivolous stuff like watches and sell it and then uh, then cancel that business or declare bankruptcy, What he's basically doing is opening up lines of credit under false pretenses, with intention to use the money in selfish ways, only to his own benefit, basically robbing the bank. And then he's openly admitting his intentions later online and TikTok, which I also don't think is a good idea if he actually had done this. So I'm not sure if he's just trying to become popular or if he actually did this, but I consider this incredibly, incredibly dangerous and very borderline, if not fraud. I'm not a legal expert, so I can't say so myself. But I think if you're opening up lines of credit from a bank under false pretenses, that's something that a lot of people have been in trouble with in the past. So not something I would dive into. So that's a bummer. Maybe next time we can get advice on how to get a pool and how to get a nice home without committing fraud. If we could get both of those things at the same time, I think that'd be the best scenario. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you in the next one.